do not try to be an expert in a beginner's body. Do not try to be an expert in a beginner's mind. Um, be the beginner. Embrace that that sort of liberation that you have to be able to explore and learn and grow. Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Raman Tabatabai, who is a board-certified emergency physician and the program director for the University of Southern California, LAC-USC Medical Center Emergency Medicine Residency Program. Raman holds a master's degree in academic medicine and is a dedicated leader and teacher with a focus on improving resident mental health and wellness. In this episode, we talk a lot about transitions, whether that is starting a new team, moving up in rank, or assuming a new position. We talk about pushing yourself, about failing productively, and about holding on to beginner's mind. There's stuff in here for everybody, but if you happen to be one of the brand new emergency doctors just starting their residency training, make sure you listen to this one. Before we get started, don't forget to sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure. It's free, and it delivers a deep dive into a lot of the ideas and mental models that we discuss on this podcast. You can find it at emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, if you like what you hear on this podcast, we'd love your help spreading the word. So tell a friend, leave us a rating, or just reach out and tell us directly at emergencymind.com slash contact. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. Raman, thank you so much for joining on the podcast. Awesome. Awesome to get a chance to sit down with you, even socially distanced as we are. Um, really thrilled to come on and, and talk. Yep. It's good to talk, Dan. We've been running around and racing for the last six months. It's good to pause and actually Absolutely. chat. Absolutely. So I'm hoping we could start sort of throwing ourselves back in time towards the beginning. What what made you get into emergency medicine to begin with? And, and when was it that you really started thinking about, about emergencies sort of as their own thing? Probably when I first started thinking about emergency medicine um, was during a big moment of, of uh, doubt that I had during my third year in medical school. Uh, I was just starting my very first rotation. I was on CT surgery, uh, and we were rotating. We were uh, rotating through. We were on rounds. It was me and another medical student, while uh, the attendings and um, the fellows were in the OR, and we were just walking around, just getting to know the patients. And I remember walking into a uh, patient's room, a uh, middle-aged, really nice Italian man who was sitting there with his wife. Uh, and while we were while we were chatting and talking and asking um, how he was doing that day, uh, he started clutching his chest and uh, getting really uh, really diaphoretic, uh, looking very uncomfortable. Um, and he uh, he looked at us and he he said, uh, "I don't I don't feel good. I I need help." Um, and at that moment, me and the other med- medical student uh, sort of looked at each other and. Um, we, we both looked at the patient. We we're like, we need, we, we need to find you a doctor, like a real doctor <laughs> and, uh, sort of frantically running out of the room, um, looking around for like, God, we didn't know the system really. We, I was at the VA. We were looking for any clerk or nurse or anybody who, um, we could get their attention and asking, Hey, how can we find a real doctor that can help this man right now? Um, and eventually they were able to call and, um, page the attendings who were on our service and uh, page the cardiologist who then came and did all the things that you're supposed to do, which, you know, call up for an EKG and, um, check it, you know, they, they, they got them all teed up and he ended up going, um, 
going into the cath lab and ultimately got a got a cabbage. But uh, I remember in that moment uh, realizing that nothing that you had read and nothing that you had done mattered when you can't um, handle a situation uh, in real time. And um, I think that was sort of my first like soiree into um, feeling feeling inadequate and ill prepared. Um, and throughout the next two years, I just every rotation that I went to, um, feeling like I always wanted to feel prepared for um, the unpredictable and be able to help patients. And um, the one thing that they had taught us as medical students was, you know, you should, even if you can't cure them, if you can't order the right tests, you should comfort that patient. Um, and I don't think it was all that comforting for the patient or his wife when the two people <laughs> that were in the room just started running out of there, uh, you know, like chickens with their heads cut off. So um, we went back and obviously talked to the wife and uh, told her that help was on the way and eventually calmed the situation down. But um, I think that was the first time in my inadequacy as a student thinking like the kind of doctor I would want to be would be one that could act. Um, in the moment and help comfort people instead of freaking them out more. Yeah, so that's that's just great, man. I mean, what an incredible story and what an introduction to to thinking under pressure right there. And if you've ever, if you're listening to this and you've ever played one of the um, life support games they have where you're trying to learn how to provide life support and you're sort of testing yourself on it, almost all of the scenarios start by somebody looking at you, clutching their chest and saying, oh, I don't feel good. And there's a reason that that happens. It's because that happens in real life. And that's usually the signal that, you know, impending doom is potentially coming. But what you said there is so spot on, that idea that that all of the knowledge that you have almost feels like it's trapped in a box somewhere unless you're able to deliver it to the patient. And sometimes that, you know, even if you are a smart, well-meaning, well-read human being, uh, if you can't figure out how to get that first step going, that first step is almost, uh, you know, will just get you get you moving and get you to the point where you can start delivering some of that knowledge, even if you can't get everything working like that. I mean, I guess I would ask, what did it what did it feel like when you were looking for those other doctors? Was there at least a sense of, hey, I'm I'm trying to do something here? Yeah, I mean. Looking back at it, I think I was in complete fight or flight, you know, it was sort of this crippling feeling of uh, doubt and inadequacy and like, I should be able to help this person more than I am. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, part of it also was realizing, I think, also in retrospect that uh, you have an incredible amount of um, lack of knowledge and experience and uh, unfamiliarity with the system and being able to at least realize that you don't have the resources to do anything. I, looking back, it, it, it seems almost like a, you know, like a cartoon what was happening, but, but the thinking back, like, I'm glad I didn't just sit there or me and the other medical student didn't sit there and, um, gather 10 more minutes of history. Um, so I guess that was a win, you know, getting out of there and activating somebody else that, um, could do something for them. Yeah, that's that's actually really important and not at all a small thing, right? When you are in a situation and you realize you're out of your depth and you need more resources to be able to say, okay, this is an emergency and I need to go do something different than what I was doing right now is like definitely the the level zero, level one, whatever it is of of starting to to respond as as you would now. And obviously now you know, being the program director at LA County USC, uh, training loads and loads of people and seeing lots of patients, that's not your current 
you know, set of cards that you play with, right? You don't, you don't now sit and sort of wait for something to happen and go get a cardiologist. But, but the line between like earlier version of you that, that at least recognized emergency and sort of like current version of you that is teaching people how to respond in that circumstances is, is a really fascinating one that I'm, I'm hoping we get to push on a little bit today. So, so you did that, you found that opportunity, you realized, hey, uh, emergency thinking is kind of a thing I want to explore. Um, and then what what was it like for you in uh, in residency training? What was that like for you? Uh, man, I, I, I want to say, and I, I wish I could tell you that I didn't have several more encounters like that, but there have just been so many in their various forms. Um, I, I uh, during during residency training, um, I think one of the most important things for me, uh, I, I don't think I was doing this consciously, you know, um, but I, I spent a lot of time. Uh, kind of thinking about uh, whether or not I had the skill set, the requisite skill set, the requisite knowledge to do the thing that I was going to do at that moment in time. Um, and it, it happened to me pretty quickly in succession on, again, my first few shifts where the sort of the density and frequency of situations where you don't feel prepared was just so high during that first time. When, when I first started as a resident of LA County, um, your first year was done in a different hospital. Um, so you do a transitional year. Um, so your intern year where you get some of those foundational skills was done somewhere else. When I came to LA County, um, there, the, the, there was a, the patients had high acuity, high, a lot of pathology, um, but also that was combined with a, a great amount of autonomy. Um, and when I was um, working as a resident, that autonomy I had to really kind of like step back and go, man, am I ready to be doing this thing that I'm being asked to do? Um, and it, in the smallest forms, the one of my first cases that I can remember, I was working with uh, uh, Stuart Swadron, who was my PD at the time, um, and we're working in in C booth. Uh, we had a, tra a trauma patient come in, and they weren't really asking me to do much. They, um, it, you know, the senior just asked if I could get oxygen, grab the oxygen for uh, for the patient. And again, that feeling, there was that, um, that I could feel that my energy was up, um, probably higher than it needed to be. And I went and grabbed the little uh, nasal cannula and somehow, I can't, I can't even replicate this now, but somehow in grabbing the nasal cannula, I got it tangled up um, into you know, all kinds of ways. And when I, <laughs> when I remember Dr. Swadden looking at me and saying, hey, uh, what's going on over there? And I'm just like, I don't know. I don't feel like I, I, like my dexterity was off. Everything was off. Um, and that should be something that you can do as a, not, a, not as anybody, not just a resident, a medical student. And I realized that a lot of what I was doing was sort of like self-defeating and just getting my energy was not in the right place. Taking a pause, taking a breath, sort of centering myself before like running and getting uh, getting into these sort of stressful moments um, was going to be key. And from that first week on, I tried to kind of step back and, uh, and pause a little bit, make sure that I was mentally uh, mentally right before I started jumping into things. Oh man, we've all, we've all been there. <laughs> um, but but there's so much of that sort of sort of tripping over yourself, and and there, there's a couple pieces that I think go into that that are worth talking about. So so first off, you're really describing 
sort of like three components that you need to be uh, a successful ER doctor. Like you need the knowledge, right? You need like the, what is the skill? What is the actual treatment and diagnosis for this patient? You need the ability to apply that knowledge under pressure when asked in the middle of a, a trauma or whatever. And then you need to be able to tune your own physiology to sort of regulate your, your emotional and physiological arousal. And that really gets into this whole idea that, um, I know you and I have talked about, and we were talking with our residents about recently, this thing called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, which basically is this, if you haven't seen it, uh, I'll, I'll post a picture of it up with this episode, but if you haven't seen it, it's basically this bell-shaped curve where the, um, the y-axis is uh, sort of performance ability and the x-axis is uh, it, it arousal and sort of uh, energy state. So if you can imagine if you're really low energy, your performance isn't very good. You need to be sort of revved up. Uh, and then there's an optimal part in the middle. And then there's this other effect, which is that if you're too high energy, if you're too jittery, if your nerves are too high, you're really going to perform really poorly. And I think most of us, when we start, that's where we find ourselves all the time. And it's really right end side of the curve. That's how we that's how we order dumb things and, you know, tie the oxygen cord around ourselves several times and and fall down. Um, not naming any names there, Raman. Right. But, yeah. No, it's it's you know, we all have our little blooper reels. Exactly. Uh, it's so, it's only fun to to think about in retrospect. We can have a good laugh about it years later. <laughs> Absolutely, but that uh, that idea of shifting of left shifting yourself on that Yerkes-Dodson curve of controlling your physiology to be able to apply your knowledge is a really really crucial thing. Uh, I, I I don't know about you. I certainly didn't get that training like that when I was starting. Um, you know, it was just sort of assumed that like, yeah, you'd, you'd be jittery and screw it up for a while until you figured it out yourself. Did you get any formal training on that when you were starting? Uh, no, a lot of it happened in real time. Um, and a lot of it was trial and error and kind of figuring out what kind of energy was helpful and not helpful and developing, um, you know, checklists. We, we've talked about the checklist manifesto before, making sure that you have your hard stops when you're when you're about to do something. The less experienced you are, the more you got to rely a little bit on those things, um, and the more experienced you are, you know, making sure you have those so so you don't start to start to forget things as you go into um, your automated mode. Uh, but I do remember um, having a simulation session um, pretty early on and hearing hearing those words, the the slowest smooth. And we worked with the Navy folks, and we've been working with them for a long time here. Um, and hearing those words were really impactful, the slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast, that you don't need to be racing ahead to get things down. And sometimes you double and triple and quadruple your work when you haven't just taken that moment to breathe and slow down and do things in a more systematic way. But um, but no, in a, you know, not in, a, in a, any kind of curricular uh, format, just sort of trial, error, and uh, picking things up here and there. Um, and I know we're doing more of that now. It's good to kind of apply those concepts. But uh, unfortunately, back then, it was a lot of trial and error and figuring it out as you go. Hmm. And you mentioned the Navy folks, but but was there anybody in particular, either in on the Navy side of things or on the emergency side of things? Um, and just if for those of you that don't know, the, the L.A. County USC has a long tradition of working with the hand in hand with the Naval Trauma Training Center, who are um, incredibly awesome group of people that that uh, work with us in the emergency department. Um, but was there anybody in particular on either side of those that really served as a good role model for you? Was there anything that stood out as like, wow, like, how did this person sort of react like that when I'm when I'm here, you know, sort of like tying myself up with an oxygen cord? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, I can think of, of quite a few people. Uh, the, a, lot of, a lot of my seniors, a, uh, uh, John Love, who was one of the, um, uh, it was from the Navy, he was one of the attendings that came and he would work, up, work with us. He was somebody who always would make sure, I mean, he, he had the spidey sense of who was, who was a little too ramped up and who wasn't. And he somehow was always able to get your energy right. Um, uh, we have uh, we have an attending Tom Myatt, who you're you're uh, you're probably pretty familiar with, um, who just always seems to he's functioning in fifth and sixth gear, but on the outside he always looks like he's you know like that second and third gear, real calm, cool, um, relaxed. Um, so sort of uh, those types of people, Emily Rose, who you just had recently, was my senior when I had started. Um, and the things I, I appreciated about all those people and so many more, you know, I'm, I'm leaving out a ton of senior residents and attendings and faculty that um, I learned from. But um, it, they, they all tended to not only slow down and sort of um, be able to have this like focused mental cognitive processing, but all these people at the same time, always seem to see the patient sort of as a whole, as a whole person, right? It, they, you would never um, see any of the uh, of them uh, like starting a procedure or about to intubate someone and not kind of like kneel down and talk to the patient and say, "Hey, um, I know this is like a scary moment that's going to happen. Like, do you have any friends? Do you have any family? Like, you're in good hands." Like, always maintaining that human humanistic aspect of it. Um, and so those the, the the role models that I think I really tended to to gravitate toward, and, and like I said, there's so many here, um, had that that ability to mentally process and perform, and then maintain the humanity uh, uh, with the patient at the same at the same time. I wonder, do you think those are two sides of the same thing, or are they two different things? Right? Is it that you? you have something that allows you to slow down and process and that gives you the mental space which it would take to um, do some of the more humanistic sides of medicine whereas otherwise there might not be time to or is it really uh, two totally separate trains of thought yeah i think i think you're right i think that this it probably is part of our you know so-called checklist to remember that there's a there's a human being there, um, beneath all behind all the procedures and all the um, the chaos that's going on, and you want to do the best thing for that person. But I think for us having that, having it, being able to zoom out and be able to get yourself out of your own mentality and remember what it's like for the other person, I think requires a little bit of slowing down and. Um, slowing down of your cognitive processes and um, a situational it's part of I, I, yeah you're right I think that's part of the situational awareness I think we get so self-absorbed about what we're doing and how we're doing things that ha the the patient is uh, is obviously in the center of it and it takes some situational awareness to take note of what the patient is experiencing what the people around us are experiencing and not just what we're experiencing 
All right, Raman, I was hoping we could shift gears uh, a little bit and talk sort of about transition. So you mentioned a couple of times as you were telling those stories that one of the things that you were really noticing the first couple of times you ran into those emergencies is that um, understanding the system that you practice in, understanding the structure that that exists around you when you practice emergency medicine is really important. Um it is, as we're recording this, sort of the end of June. Um, there's a ton of transitions that happen in the emergency medicine world, end of June, beginning of July, as people move up in rank in their training programs, as new doctors start training in emergencies. And it's a time when a lot of us are exposed to situations that we're not used to doing when there's when there's all this transition. Um, I'm wondering if we can talk for a few minutes about uh, about sort of how to do that, how to think about emergencies and and perform under pressure, specifically when you're moving into a new, unfamiliar environment, which can be one of the most challenging times for all of us. Um, I don't think I have necessarily a specific question on that, so I, I don't know, take that however you will, but but let's, yeah. let's jump in. Well, yeah, I think we can start with uh, acknowledging that there are a ton of transitions, like you said. We are two days away from the interns starting um, in the clinical areas, and uh, they they are going to be on a new journey. We also have our fourth year residents that are going to be going on and working independently uh, in about a week. And they are appropriately, you know, they're, 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 they're on the edge they're, They've never done it outside of this sort of residency environment. Uh, it's really interesting how you see that sort of peak of confidence happen in residency where uh, from intern year, you start and your confidence is pretty low and you have an acknowledgement that you don't know so much. And then your confidence level peaks um, sort of halfway to toward that tail end of residency. And then it starts to suddenly plummet a little bit again as you realize that you're going to be taken away from the system that you've gotten used to. Um, so much of your confidence has been built as a result of the, the system that you've been working in. And so, um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, the interns and what 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 does a transition actually mean for them? Um, and obviously, there's a geographical transition for a lot of them being being in a new place. Um, but also, they're going to be in a new environment of emergency medicine where they hadn't been in before. They're going to be doing that in a new system that they haven't been used to doing it. They're going to be around new people, um, forming new relationships that they haven't had um, in the past. And they're going to be doing all of that uh, with the with the least amount of knowledge and experience in the department, um, and so it, it's a pretty unsettling it's a, a pretty unsettling prospect. I'd say the the transitions that you take on later on, after, you know, the, our our uh, residents going from year one to year two, year two to three, and year four even going into new new environments, they at least understand emergency medicine, but they will be in a new system. Um, but any one of those things can be so, oh, and not to mention culture, all the, you know, the culture of where you're going into and um, figuring all of that out. But any one of those elements can really be uh, disorienting and take you off your center. Um, and <clears throat> so I, I think part of our part of our role and what we've been trying to do, I know you've come and talked to the interns. It was so great talking about about the EM mind and, uh, and that transition and mindset um, is helping, uh, helping them to both understand the reality that this is going to happen. All of these things are going to be new, whether you're consciously or not consciously thinking about it, and that you're going to be 
frequently off of your game. You're frequently going to be off center. And just that, just noticing that that is going to happen and accepting that that will happen, I think is a good first step toward then coming up with strategies for recentering and um, growing and making sure that it's a positive, positive experience um, when you feel disoriented. And how do you personally deal with that when you find yourself in a situation where where you're not used to? And I mean, maybe that's, you know, you get called to um, a person who collapsed and you're not in an emergency room, you're on the street with your family. Or maybe that's, you know, you are tackling in your um, sort of the administrative side of your life or something. You're tackling a new challenge that's very unlike the ones you've tackled before. Um, You know, sort of no matter what you come up against, there's still this core skill of applying knowledge under pressure, which is, you know, the main thesis of the emergency mind. That's what we focus on. But, but how do you personally handle those new situations like that? Do you have any, do you have any rituals that you use? Do you have any structure you impose on that? What do you do? Yeah. Uh, so I can think of two moments where I've had that happen to me specific to emergency medicine, and we can talk beyond that. But, um, the, the first moment where I really realized, gosh, no matter I had the, I was my fourth year of residency and I was moonlighting for one of the first times I was working at a Kaiser hospital, very different than the county. And um, having done, gosh, maybe 60, 70 intubations during residency, maybe more, I can't remember exactly how many we'd done. Um, and getting to the head of the bed of a patient that required in this emergent airway procedure, um, as we were preparing, rather than just reaching for the blade that we needed to look inside the person's mouth um, and doing it naturally, I had to think, gosh, does the blade go in my left hand or in my right hand? Why do I even have to think about this procedure that I've done 60, 70 plus times? Why am I so disoriented in this new system? Um, and just realizing that, wow, you can be, be off your game, I think. So in that, in that particular instance, um, uh, taking a moment again, uh, for me, it's, it's a, it's a breath and saying like, you've done this before, um, and just kind of walking, walking yourself back through it. The second moment that I remember having that happen was visiting a friend in New York. Um, this is, uh, right after residency had ended and we were just, um, coming home after, um, after going out for dinner and this guy was driving a motorcycle and had just gotten smashed. Um, by a car and was sitting on the ground and clearly a lot of pain. Um, and when, when we went to, to talk to him, um, he was sitting up and like my first instinct was my, my, not my emergency medicine persona. My just first instinct was, Hey man, are you able to stand up? And I, and, and immediately I had to stop back and say, what? That is absolutely the wrong thing to do. <laughs> you, all the training that you've had, um, you should not be asking this guy to get up and move or like turn his neck or do any of these things. Um, but, but again, it was just being disoriented. I was not in the same environment that I'm used to. I wasn't in the same um, place. So um, for those emergency medicine type situations, for me, I, I need to just kind of like pause and almost like transport myself back into an, an environment, at least in my mind, that I'm familiar with, and to say, like, hey, you understand how to do this. Let's go through this systematically the same way you would in an environment where you are familiar. It becomes a lot more difficult uh, when it's an environment that you're unfamiliar with or a, you know, it, it's not emergency medicine related. 
you're trying to pick up a new sport, you're trying to pick up a new hobby, instrument, etc. Um, in which case you don't have a lot of experience to draw from. Um, and so in those moments, it's sort of going back to square one and just realizing you don't know and that you're going to be making errors and making mistakes and um, and learning from those. Uh, I think for for as you're you're more experienced, you try not to um, allow those sort of little minor changes um, to disorient you, get recentered. But um, it's really hard to center when you don't have that experience and backing. Yeah. Wow. There's there's so much good stuff in there and. Okay, so so let's do this. So first, if you're not already in emergency medicine, there's some context that it's going to take to understand that. So residency training, emergency training, exists in this model of graduated pressure, where you start uh, with limited skills, limited responsibilities, and limited pressure. And every time you advance uh, a level, a year of training, you get more responsibility, more pressure is added to you, and more is expected of you. And that's to, that's done on purpose to allow you to practice your skills initially in a friendly environment before you move on to a much more challenging environment. When you get towards the end of residency, you are often allowed to do a thing uh, which Raman mentioned called moonlighting, which is where you function as a independent physician in a different system, um, sort of on your off hours. Uh, and a lot of people take advantage of that. Um, and it has uh, some unique training applications and, and some interesting things to it from that perspective. But so context aside, um, I think there's two or three things in there that you said that's, that are crucially important. One is just recognizing that you can become reliant on a system and you can become very uh, distracted when you are therefore not in that exact system, right? So if your intubation setup uh, is always in exactly one spot, uh, and it's not there when you reach for it, then that can cause you a lot of problems if you're used to not having to think through that. Same thing is true in jujitsu. If you're used to playing, uh, you know, no-gi jujitsu, where your grips are a very specific type of thing, and then you switch to gi jujitsu, the moves, the flow, the everything can be very different and very disorienting. Um, and that's the thing that, like you said, just acknowledging the fact that you need to slow yourself down more than usual at the beginning of something um, is really important. And there certainly is truth to what you said about when you have this base, this well of experience to tap into, you're more easily able to make those transitions because you're able to say, hey, well, I haven't done this in this circumstance, but I did this in that circumstance. And that's close enough that there's some parallels for me for me to dig into. Um but what about what about that other part where you really don't have the experience, right? Are new interns coming in, or or maybe we're talking about, you know, uh, a person who is just coming into being a firefighter, or a person who is just coming into to working on a sport as part of a team where they're just starting to apply that knowledge. Brand new situation, brand new everything. What does that person fall back on? What do they rely on to help them in that moment? Uh, yeah. It's it's a completely different set of challenges, right? And in some ways, it's liberating being that actually being a beginner, right? You yeah. don't have you're not constrained by all the rules and um, thoughts and patterns that you've been used to, and you're able to sometimes see things in a way and you know in a way that's more enlightening than somebody who's an expert. You know, they they talk about this um, this concept of, of uh, shoshin. You've, you've probably heard of the the, the beginner the, the beginner's mind. You know, the opportunities 
are are in, are numerous. Like the, the the amount of the possibilities are numerous, so you're able to take in so much more. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is not fighting the fact that you're a beginner. Do not do not try to be an expert in a beginner's body. Do not try to be an expert in a beginner's mind. Um, be the beginner. Embrace that that sort of liberation that you have to be able to explore and learn and grow. Um, and it's difficult, right? Like you're going into this new environment and you want to impress and you want to be the best. And um, you just realizing that you're not going to be the best when you start and you shouldn't be the best. Um, that every every one of these opportunities where you feel inadequate, if you could just kind of convert your mind to say, well, okay, this moment, this moment where I'm uncomfortable and I don't know what I'm doing, this is an opportunity. And really like diving in and exploring that and reflecting and saying like, what could I learn from this experience? And then turning it around and you have all these mentors around you and asking like, what more could I have taken out from this experience? And really driving yourself for this like exponential growth. But if you try to be an expert in that moment and you don't uh, acknowledge that you're a beginner and that you just, if the outcome was good, I mean, you talk about this all the time, that, uh, that Annie Duke book, that thinking and bets, that if the outcome just happens to be good, like I was asked to intubate, I got the tube in and it, and it happened. And then, you know, whether it was luck or not, the outcome is not tied to the process. If you don't take the time or the thought or the energy to think about how that process could have been better. And you just focus on, I just got lucky, nothing bad happened. A lot of us, I think, just live in fear of something bad happening. And if you live that way, then you close yourself off to all the opportunities there are um, sort of in the process to to grow. Um, so embracing the vulnerability, like to say, I don't know, is powerful. It's courageous. It's it's like that is the first step in growth to say, I don't know, but I will find out um, versus saying, I know that is immediately closing yourself off to, to, to any potential um, growth in that situation. The truth is, even when you know, you don't know. There's a lot you don't know, even when you know, <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, we're learning that. I'm still learning that all the time. Uh, so uh, anyhow, I think there's that sort of keeping that open mind, that eagerness, that curiosity, um, embracing failures as opportunities, um, which that's a whole separate conversation. There are certain failures which you can actually embrace as opportunities and lend themselves naturally to growth. There are other failures or other errors um, that can be pretty traumatic. Um, and it, that's a, I think it's a whole nother conversation of how we deal with those moments. But I think that's just the starting point. I'm going to pause because I think I just went on a little bit of a. No, that was phenomenal. Okay. Totally phenomenal. That idea of embracing being a beginner is is so perfect. And and let's press on that. I mean, functionally embracing being a beginner like you said is embracing the possibility of learning and growing it's saying i'm not perfect i'm not complete i'm not going to be perfect or complete right invoking the japanese concept of wabi-sabi right this idea of nothing is perfect complete or permanent but it's embracing that idea that i'm i'm learning and my my goal is growth not necessarily perfection you know and i think that's something that is certainly Certainly our interns need to be doing this, right? When when you are just starting and you're transitioning to a new phase, whether that's being a uh, 
you know, a person in a new environment, you're the new person on a team, you're the new person in a gym, whatever it is, like being that beginner, even if you have experience, even if you have skill is incredibly important. But I think that growth needs to continue. I mean, that's something that I certainly aspire to personally to continue to hold that beginner's mind in emergency medicine, uh, even as I see more patients, right, to, to know, hey, I'm not complete, I'm not perfect, I have tons to learn from everybody as I keep going. Um, you know, we live in a very interesting time in this COVID-19 pandemic, I think really exposed to a lot of us uh, how um, imperfect our understanding of medicine is as a species, right? This this disease came along and, and what happened broke, in, you know, in quotes, broke all these rules that we had about how somebody was supposed to react to certain treatments and how physiology was supposed to happen. And it really exposed to us that like, you know, it's not whether we are beginners or experts, it's whether or not we are open to learning or close to learning because the world continues to change all around us and you never reach a point where you know everything about emergency medicine or, or, or anything else. Um, so I love that idea of, of embracing being a beginner. Um, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you personally continue to embrace being a beginner, even though you are certainly not a beginner and you're, you're, you know, well into mastering your craft, not to put words in your mouth, but well into mastering your craft, right? But still that mindset of, of, of growth focus and of continued learning, what's that look like for you? Um, I, I, a lot of times I'll say that I've had such amazing mentors. I think about all my coaches, as you will, my program directors, Jan Schoenberger and Stuart Swadgren and the Billy Mallins, all the people that have been here to teach and guide and coach me. Um, but aside from them, like the, some of my greatest mentors, some of my, and continue to be my greatest mentors are the interns and the second years and the third years. Um, and the reason is they are constantly challenging me and asking me questions that I assumed that I had explored, but I hadn't fully explored. Um, and so I think that taking away the conception that we are it, it, like it really opening my mind up to all the possibilities of things that I don't know, I haven't thought about. God, I remember uh, one of my first shifts as an attending here at County. Again, um, one of the one of the fourth year residents, we were treating a patient who was very sick, had a you know rip roaring infection, septic shock. Um, we were giving all kinds of um, medicines to keep that person alive, and she, in the midst of all this, she comes and she asks me. She says, "Can I ask you?" Um, you, you told me to give Tylenol to that patient. Does the Tylenol actually do anything for the patient? Like, I know it treats the fever, but does it help them in any way? And, and I remember my initial reaction being, I don't know, man, just give the Tylenol. Like, who cares? <laughs> just give the Tylenol and let's be done with it. And, and then I remember finishing the shift and saying, like, you know, that was an opportunity. I, I have no idea if Tylenol actually improves their mortality or um, their, their physio, you know, does it help? Does it not help? Let me read into this. And I, I kind of use that moment to, to dive a little bit deeper, but being open to the possibility that like, there's always so much to learn um, and hone our craft. And I'm always, as we're what I'm watching, um, you know, setting standards and expectations for our, our residents and our interns, and then watching them uh, reach those standards and expectations or excel in them, oftentimes I'll look at them and say, man, huh, 
that's that that is something I would love to incorporate into my into my practice. The way that they just did that, I hadn't thought about doing it that way. Um, and uh, you know, just kind of like taking yourself away from the the professor and the teacher, and you're the person that's always going to be telling other people how to get things done better, and shifting from like you know, yeah, I think you have this this the, we we I think we talk about this a lot on ship. Like we're always like having the humility and the vulnerability to ask each other, hey, hey man, I've been doing this for a long time, but how would you do this? Like, um, how would you think about this? Like, um, let's let's talk about it together because ultimately the, the the real goal is providing the very best care for the for the patient. It's outside of us, um, but we develop such an ego and such pride, and it hurts and it feels bad um, to like have your ego. <laughs> you know, your, your pride sort of questioned or like admit that you don't know something, but I mean, outside of emergency medicine, I've been doing this, this, this is a transition for me the last two years doing this job as program director. And yeah, I, I do not, uh, like looking stupid in front of residents or colleagues or peers. But then when I sit back and think like, I'm going to look stupid in front of colleagues and peers and residents. And that just is a accepted reality of like what it, what it is. Then, then um, hopefully then you transition toward, toward growth. Um, I don't know if I answered yeah. that question. <laughs> no, definitely. Because I think that you're describing in there that the need to stay open in your own practice, in your own mind to uh, different ways to do things in, in a sense that that part of hammering on your own craft is the continued uh, ability to change and to grow and to process other points of view about it. And that staying open like that, that that, that well, let's let's say it this way, the opposite of that. Right. Uh, deciding you are done and complete and static is a recipe for becoming obsolete and a worse doctor over time. We know that medicine continues to grow, the needs of our patients continue to change, and what it is to provide care in an emergency evolves as we get better. So if you stop learning, if you stop processing new information, you will become rapidly obsolete and essentially useless over time. So we must stay open to growth and change like that. And there's two versions of that, right? There's like the grudgingly open person who like, who like putters along and sort of like eventually accepts something, and the person who is excitedly open and who is who's embracing being a continual learner, even if you're not a beginner, but in embracing being a continual learner to say, yo, whoa, this thing is crazy. What is this? Like, tell me what's going on here. I want to learn that. I want to learn that new skill and, and take it and sort of absorb it. Um, and on my best days, that's what I am. Right. I'm not always there. I don't think anybody right. is, right? That's but right. on our best days, that's what they are. Um, but but you said one other thing that's crucially important, which is that in order to be that most effectively, in order to be that, in order to embrace being a learner and embrace um, the continued path of mastery wherever you are on that, it's so important to build around you and build in your team a culture that understands and expects that. Because if you have a culture that says, no, you have to be perfect all the time, you have to be a finished product, then you're going to have this incredible tension between what you need to get better, which is growth and learning, and what you're expected to do, which is perfection and, and instant mastery. And those things can't really coexist. So we need to be able to build a culture that allows people, that celebrates people as they're learning and growing and changing. Um, and I think that's part of, that's part of our job uh, for any sort of a team 
that is trying to function in times when there is occasionally crisis, which is essentially every team ever in existence, right, is to create a circumstance where we value that growth and where we celebrate it. Um, you know, I think you're in a really unique position for that because you are the captain of this part of the ship in a lot of ways. How, how do you see that? How do you see that job of growing that culture? Uh, yeah, I, so I think a lot about, I've, I've just come to terms that my, this job, for a lot of us, all of us do it in different capacities, is we're all coaches in some capacity. Like, we are here to coach, and we're here to facilitate um, people's growth. And I guess my, my main job, the way I see it now, is to develop those coaching skills in our trainees. Like, the difference between medical school and residency and many other transitions that people go through is you are in this... Um, this environment where you are being told there are so many guardrails. This is what you're going to learn now. This is how you're going to do it. And whether, you know, when you're on the swim team in high school or whatever, you're going to show up to practice at this time. This is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. And that, that structure is just built in. And our job is now like you are no longer on the swim team. You are no longer in medical school. How are you going to learn how to be your own coach? How are you going to be the person that when some incident occurs, for you to even identify it as a potential growth opportunity or learning opportunity, you are the coach. And how are you going to um, reflect and teach yourself? How are you gonna hold yourself accountable to grow from that and be better? And how are you also gonna self-criticize yourself in a way that's effective? How, like, when you self-criticize yourself, are you the coach that like taunted and berated you in front of the entire team and made you feel like crap um, during that during that moment? Or are you going to be the coach that like identifies what technique you need to improve on and really make sure that you're the person doing that? Are you an abusive coach to yourself? <laughs> are you, you know, like we, a lot of times the way we talk to ourselves, we don't talk to, I would never talk to my colleague and like they miss a case. Like I call my, I've called myself all kinds of names that I would never call anybody else. Um, in that moment. So how do you learn to be an effective coach to yourself, raising your standards, raising the bar, and then, but also um, developing just the right amount and the right type of self-criticism that is like, holds you accountable, but is also supportive. Um, so for me, that is the job that I aspire to do is to um, allow for that growth in other people. Because once residency gets taken away, you don't have those, the, we, what do we have, you know, 40 plus faculty here. You don't have those 40 plus coaches around. So you have to develop those own skill, your own skills of like deliberate practice and um, becoming that adaptive expert on your own in an iterative way throughout the rest of your career. Amazing, absolutely amazing. That's a part of part of the reason I am so happy to get to work with you on on this stuff in residency here. Um, such such an honor to do that, uh, Raman. We are we're coming to the end of our time on this episode here uh, already. Kind of shocking. Um, and before we sign off, I, I want to give you the chance to issue a challenge to people listening to Ooh. this. Um, either either the incoming interns across the country or or somebody not in emergency medicine or, or anybody else what do you what do you want people listening to this episode to to do what, what is your challenge to them Ooh, I love that all right let's come up with a good challenge so I think um, I, my challenge is to uh, is to is to fail uh, because it's not if but when you're gonna fail 
when you're going to perceive that you failed. Um, it's to fail and to take that failure and to not just teach yourself, but teach others uh, what, the, what, what you learned from that failure. I challenge anybody who in their intern year can do that. It takes sometimes an entire career for us to have the courage to be able to own up to our failure and teach and um, allow others to grow from it. So um, I guess my, my challenge would be um, to identify uh, that failure, see it as an opportunity and, um, and to share it with other people. Incredible. Raman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Absolutely a joy to get to talk to you about this. Cool, man. Thanks, Dan. Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.